the book of Job is relevant for all kinds of reasons. It's a difficult book. It's a long book, about 42 chapters. As we said last night, it's made up primarily of a, a genre of literature called poetry, and poetry is hard to st understand because it's got figures of speech and metaphors and similes and uh, all kinds of different structure, and it's not really uh, literal or precise. That's what poetry is. Uh, so you have to be able to kind of discern what's going on here. And so uh, I mentioned last night also because it's such a, a big book, I don't have time to read every verse in the book of Job. I, I teach the book of Job at a Bible college in Serbia and Eastern Europe, uh, have been for about 10 years. So this is about 20 hours I mentioned last night of material I'm compressing into four. So it's like uh, my flight here, uh, I took off from Huntsville, Alabama, landed in Denver, uh, took off from Denver and landed in uh, Vancouver, took off from Vancouver and ended up in Kelowna. In Kelowna. So so here we are, uh, what, we're, what we're doing right now is uh, through the book of Job, we're, we're, we took off last night, uh, I'm going to land, I'm going to fly over some stuff this morning, we're going to land in some places I'll read in the book of Job in just a few minutes. One of the things that the book of Job does is help us work through the issue of the problem of pain and suffering. That is often a reason why people either don't believe in God or they, they've rejected God or they've run away from God, run away from the church, uh, have rejected Christianity because they look at the world and the world is full of suffering and pain and discord and problems and difficulties. And the question comes up, how, if there's a God, then why all this problem? If there's a good God, then, then why do all these things happen? And especially if God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, and there's something within us that's kind of natural that says bad things should happen to bad people, uh, and then we make a judgment of who's bad and who's good. But when they're good people, when, when you kind of follow the rules and you do everything right, th there's something in, inside of us that says, well, naturally then we should be rewarded for that. And, and so if we do good, we should get good. And so it calls into question the character of God. There, there are some things that the Bible affirms very clearly about God. That first of all, God is, that God is uh, strong. And the, 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 the big theological term, he's omnipotent. He can do anything he wants to do. He's all-powerful. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the past, the present, and the future. He knows everything about you, every detail of your life. He knows what the weather's going to be tomorrow. We said last night, God doesn't get up in the morning and, and uh, check the weather forecast. He already knows. God knows the future because he controls the future. He's, so he's omnipotent. He's, he's all strong. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnibenevolent, which means he's good and he's always good to his children. And he's full of grace and mercy and love. So the other thing it affirms is that he's omnipresent and he's everywhere. He's, he's, there's no place you can go on the earth or in the universe or in space or the deepest ocean into the Mariana Trench of the ocean. The deepest part on the face of the earth. God's there. You can't escape God. But when suffering comes, then there starts to come this kind of reasoning that says, well, maybe God's strong and smart, but he's not good. Or God's good and, and, and strong, but he's not smart. Or he doesn't know. He wants to do something, but he can't and he's helpless. Or he, he could do something, but he didn't know this was coming and it surprised him. Or, and this is the, the, probably the most uh, severe reaction, is to say, well, God's not even there. He's not present. There is no God. And we talk about how atheism is, has its own problems. I don't care what belief system you have. People say, well, Christianity has a problem with the, the problem of evil. How do you reconcile there being a God, a good God, with the problem of evil in the world? And I say to you that every system of belief has that problem. So whether you're a Hindu or a Muslim or an atheist, you've got a problem with the whole, how do you explain suffering? And if you're an atheist, then, then all you're left with is that, well, there is no purpose in suffering. In fact, there's no purpose in life. There's no meaning. You, you just, you die. 
Uh, you, you live maybe long enough to inject your DNA into the next generation, then you die and the worms eat you and that's it and that's all life is? That's absurd. So there's meaninglessness. If you, so here's, here's the solution. God is all strong and he can do all things. God is smart and he knows all things. God is perfectly good and he never does injustice. And he's full of love and mercy and compassion. And God is present everywhere. There's no place you can go that God is not. Which means that your suffering has a purpose. It's not meaningless. It's not purposelessness. It, 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 it doesn't mean that, there's, that it's empty. God is doing something in you, in your suffering right now. God is doing something in the world right now through the suffering and pain that the world is experiencing. And this is what C.S. Lewis said in The Problem of Pain, that, that pain is God's megaphone to a, a, a deaf world to rouse them, to get their attention. And just like when you twist your ankle, that pain says, you need to, you need to give this attention. Right? I, I, on, my, on my truck, it, it, when I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't like stopping at gas stations, especially these days. And, uh, and so I put it off to the last minute, you know, and then I'm running on vapors. And then, the, you know, there's a little signal on my dash that says, uh, uh, you're getting low on fuel, something like that. But then there's another signal that comes on and says, needs immediate attention, right? <laughs> and that's what pain does for us. All right, so it arrests our attention. And here's the thing, every one of you, I mentioned last night, everybody's in one of three groups. You might be in some of these groups at the same time, two or three. Either you have suffering in your past that's really difficult and, and you're scarred from that, or you're presently going through something that's very, very difficult and you're going to be scarred from it, or you got something coming up where you're going to hurt and you're going to experience loss and you're going to suffer. And, and whatever group you're in, you also know people who are in one of those three groups. Maybe someone who's presently suffering. And here is what I want to talk about this morning. What do you do for them? How do you help them? When you, if you know someone who's suffering, who's going through pain, who got bad news, who experienced loss, what do you do to help them? How do you come alongside them? How do you encourage them? What do you do? And then, this is real important, what do you not do? It's really important to know what not to do and what not to say. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. So last night we, we saw this that, that uh, in the first two chapters, that, that Satan is permitted to come into the presence of God, has an audience with God. And Satan, uh, God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless. He's, he is uh, a man of integrity. He loves me. He's faithful to me. In other words, Job is doing what he's created to do. As the Westminster Confession says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Job is glorifying God with his life, reflecting God in, the, in this world, and he's enjoying God. So he's enjoying his relationship with God. And so God says to Satan, have you considered this man? And Satan says... The reason that Job is obeying you and the reason he's blameless and the reason he follows you is because you put a hedge around him. So if this is Job, you put this hedge, this protective hedge around him. And, and I can't get past this hedge from this, this protective barrier that is protecting all of his wealth. And, and we saw in the first couple chapters how wealthy Job was. He was one of the wealthiest men at that point on the face of the earth. 
And so he had a great deal of livestock and he had a lot of employees. And, and one of the ways you measured wealth not only was in livestock employees, but in the, your children. If you had a large family, if God blessed you with a lot of children, he had a lot of children, he had 10, 10 kids. All right? But not only that, that wealth, that wealth gave him uh, a great deal of, uh, when I said 10 kids, a great deal of love. So his loved ones. And he says, the reason Job blesses you and honors you is because you've given him all this and I can't get past that. You're protecting Job. And so you, you need to know something, God. This is Satan instructing God. That the reason he loves you is not because of who you are, but because of what you've given him. And if you let me take away what you've given him, he won't love you anymore. So God says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open up a place in this hedge. And I'm going to let you get in here and take away his wealth and his loved ones. So we see in the first chapter how Job experiences this great loss. He, ex he experiences the loss of his wealth and his children all, all in the same day. I mean, he, it's, you know, what this reminds me of is how quickly life can change. You can, be going, you can be going along in your life. Everything's going fine. You've got your plan. You've got your schedule. You've got your calendar. You've got really good dates on your calendar. How many of you put really bad things on your calendar? Woo. All right. There's a funeral going to be three months from now. I can't wait for that, right? You don't, you don't put bad things on your calendar. You put the good things on there that you know are coming up that you want to make time for. And then something happens. And just like that, your life changes. Uh, one of my good friends, Wayne and Brittany, know this family. Uh, in fact, this is the father of a good friend of Wayne's. Uh, just about three months ago, left church, and they went to eat at a restaurant, uh, at, a, at a place to, to you know, gather with the family. And he was stepping up on the curb, and he tripped on the curb. And there was a brick column right in front of this place where they were going into. And when he tripped on the curb... His head hit the corner of that brick column, and, and he's sitting there on the curb, and he's bleeding, bleeding profusely, and he said, well, you need to go to the hospital, and he said, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And so they, you know, put a compression on there, and they finally talked him to go to the hospital, and it looked like they are going to stitch him up, and everything's going to be great. And then uh, when they did, uh, he didn't get better, and they found a, a brain bleed, and he almost died, but now he's in the shepherd center head injury trauma center one of the greatest places to go in the united states in atlanta and he can count to four one of the smartest guys i know and now he, he's probably going to live through this at least a little while and he's having to learn how to count and he's having to learn how to walk and just i mean just like that his life changed you ever you ever go through that you get, a, you get a phone call and, and life changes just like that. He says, I'm going to take this away. I'm going to take away your wealth and it changes. And what does Job say? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he passes the test. He says, God, I still love you. I don't love you just because you gave me all this wealth. I don't love you because of all you've given. I love you because I love you. I love you. So Satan comes back and Satan says, and God says, again, if you consider my, my servant Job, and even though you took away all this stuff, he still loves me. He still follows me. And, and Satan says, well, the only reason he still loves you is because you didn't let me touch his skin. 
In other words, I, I, I took his wealth, but I was not able to take his health. All right, so health is a gift. You don't realize how great a, a gift health is until you, what? Lose it. There's nothing like feeling good after you've been feeling bad, right? And if you lose your health, then you realize, oh, I took that for granted, right? So he's, he's got good health, and, they, and now he's afflicted with these sores, and he's sitting outside of the city in a, in a heap of ashes, scraping himself with a broken clay vessel, and nobody wants to be around him. He's in quarantine because it's gross. And, and his wife says to him, curse God and die. And he says, should we accept the good from God, but not the evil? The good things from God, but not the bad things? I still love him. Even, even if he, he takes away my health, I still love him. And so he not only passes the first test, that the test of, of, of prosperity, then in that he is loving God even though he's prosperous. Because when we're prosperous, we tend to get proud and self, self-sufficient and independent. No, he still loved God. But he also passes the second test of adversity because God says you can touch him. You can, you can take away his health, but you can't take his life. Now, here's, here's something else to notice. Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. All right, so a lot of times we give way too much credit to Satan. And, and people are, you know, Christians are often fearful of Satan. And, and they get onto a lot into the, you know, spiritual warfare and worrying about demons. And all this the Bible doesn't give that much attention to Satan. Here's what you need to remember. Satan can't do anything without God's permission. Uh, J.I. Packer, the great theologian who was actually over here in Vancouver teaching the seminary for a long time, uh, wrote one of the best books I ever read, influential book on, on uh, knowing God back in the 70s. J.I. Packer said that Satan is the junkyard dog of God. And what he meant by that is just like a, a, a business owner can own a dog and that dog is a bad dog that hates his master, if the business owner puts a bad dog in, in his fenced-in area outside of his business, guess what? He still keeps the thieves away and performs the purposes of the master, even though he hates the master. And so here's Satan accomplishing the purposes of God, even though he hates God. And so God's got Satan on a, on a chain, and God can pull in that chain, and sometimes God lets out that chain. But it's God who controls him, all right? So there's this, there's this permission that has to happen. And he says, you cannot take Job's life. You can take everything else, but you can't take his life. All right, so that's where we are. Now, when bad things happen to people, if they have friends, they, they better show up. And that's what happens. Now, that was the introduction. It took half my time. Uh, this, is, this is now Job chapter 2. I want to show you what happens next. After he's experienced this loss, he says to his wife, okay, uh, you should curse God and die. And he says, well, we should accept the, good, the, the bad things from God if we're going to accept the good things from God. And here's what it says in Job chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. So they, and the, these were the places, the communities they were from, from like a Temanite would be from Teman. 
And so now when, when the Bible often does this in Old and New Testament, it lists the most prominent person first. So that's why in the, Old, in the New Testament, the Gospels that often will talk about the apostles, they always, Peter's often first in that list because he's the most prominent. And, and usually that is determined by age. So the seniority, the older you are, the more respect was shown to you. So what we've, we're going to find out is the, the oldest one is Eliphaz. So the oldest should be the wisest. That's a presumption, by the way. Just because you're older doesn't mean you're wiser. You might be old and stupid, right? So, so getting older doesn't mean you get wiser automatically, but this, you should. You should get smarter as you get older. You should get wiser. And, uh, and so this is, this is why he mentions him in this order, Eliphaz the Timonite. Bildad the shoe height, obviously the shortest because he's only shoe height. <laughs> I'm so glad you laughed at that because I, I didn't know if American humor was going to go... And my apologies to all the Americans. So, uh, so you got Bildad, and then you got Zophar, the Namathite. Now, here's, let me just tell you what happens in these next 20 or so chapters. There's a conversation. It's called a dialogue between Job and these three friends. Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, and Zophar. And so what's going to happen is Job is going to say in the next chapter, chapter 3, after after they're sitting with him uh, all this time, he's going to finally speak. Uh, let me tell you, first of all, what they did. So you got these three friends, and they made an appointment, this is verse 11, together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. So they texted one another, got a group text together, and they said, hey, let's go over to Job's, and let's hang out with Job. Let's see, he, he's really going through a tough time. And so they all gather together, and they go to Job's house, Verse 12, and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Why? Why? Because he's, I mean, his health is gone. Uh, emotionally, physically, he is, he doesn't even look like the same guy that they remember. Uh, they saw him from a distance. They did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. These are all signs in that culture of, of grieving, mourning. And so they're mourning with Job. They're grieving with Job. They're weeping with Job. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. They just came and they sat with him for seven days and seven nights. They didn't say anything. They did, they, they did not speak, and they let Job be the first one. If Job wants to talk, we'll let him talk. But we're just going to grieve with him. And here's what Job says. After this, chapter 3, verse 1, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. So I'm not going to read all of it, but basically saying, I wish I was never born. He curses his birthday. Then he goes to the end of his life, and, he, and he's going to long for his death day. All right, so here's why he says, like in verse 11, he says, why did I not die at birth? I wish I'd never been born. This is so bad. It'd be better not to be born. And then he says in verse 21, uh, those who long for their death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly are glad when they find the grave. So I, I, I wish I was never born, and I wish I could die. Have you ever been there? Um, when people commit suicide, it's because they have lost hope. Now, I have known a lot of believers, people say, well, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't go through depression. And I'm thinking, well, you don't know much of history. 
and you hadn't lived long enough because Christians do experience depression and Christians do have times where they really are wondering, do I even want to live? You may not kill yourself, but you may intentionally not buckle your seatbelt and say, Lord, maybe I'll have a wreck today. And, and that's where Job is. I wish I'd never born and I wish I could just die. That's, that's where he is on this. And they're sitting there and now Job's starting to crack. See, in the beginning he passed the test, I trust the Lord, I love the Lord. But now he's like, I wish, if you say I wish I was never born, what are you saying to God? <laughs> you, you made a mistake. All right. So, so now when he says that, they start to speak to him. So chapter 4, verse 1, Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, blah, 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 blah. I can't read all of it. But here's what he says in verse 7. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or were the upright cut off, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So what he's saying is, Job, the reason you're going through this trouble is because you troubled God. The reason you're going through this, through this problem, this suffering, is because you've sinned against God. You're reaping, you're, you're sowing what you reaped. And if, if you've done wicked things, then you're going to get bad things from God. You do bad things, get bad things. Do good things, get good things. So, so here I'm going to talk about three main mistakes I see people make when they're trying to comfort people who are in pain. The first one, this, is avo avoiding people in pain. That's your first instinct if someone you know has gone through something like this. And the reason you're afraid to show up is because you don't know what to say. Have you ever been there? Were you with someone who's really hurt? I'm a pastor, all right? And I still haven't outgrown this. And I get those calls in the middle of the night. And if it comes after midnight, nothing good happens after midnight. Those phone calls mean I got to get dressed and go down to the hospital. And in our local hospital where actually Brittany's father is very familiar because he practices medicine there. Um, at our local hospital, off to the side of the emergency room, there's a little room where the doctor comes to meet with families if there's bad news. And I can't tell you how many times through the years I have to go in that room with that family and hear this doctor say, there was nothing we could do. And they're dead. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm taking this trip. I'm driving to the hospital in the middle of the night. And I'm just saying to God, God, I don't know what to say to these people. I need you to help me. I need you to help me. And you know what I do now? I just show up and I put my arms around them and I just hug them. And I just love them. And I let them talk. That's, that, and I, I'm going to give these three friends an A plus on this. Because they come, they sit for seven days, they don't say a word, they just mourn. What does the Bible say? Romans chapter 12, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, your church is just like my church right now. There's a lot of hurt here. I, yesterday, three hours before our session last night, I got a text that one of my elders died. He died three hours before last night's session. This is, this is the last of the original elders who hired me 30 years ago at First Bible Church. And I've been visiting him. I knew the time. They'd already called in hospice, and I'd been going to his house and visiting with him. And, and little by little, I could tell you, and I said, Lord, please don't let him die while I'm in Canada. You know what? I don't get to make those decisions. This is, this is God's call. So when I get back Wednesday, I'll have a funeral. 
your church is experiencing difficulty. I've heard a little bit about what some of the things going on. Okay, so, so what do you do? You, we got to rejoice with those who rejoice. We got to mourn with those who mourn. We got to weep with those who weep. You got to be there. You get showing up is 80% of it. Just showing up and, and just crying with them and hugging them and sitting with them and, and, and letting them talk. Uh, years ago, several years ago, I got one of those phone calls. And a 16-year-old boy in our church had been four-wheeling with a friend of his in a Jeep. They'd been out in some rugged wilderness area. They rolled the Jeep. It rolled over on them. Um, the 16-year-old boy who's a member of our church, I just baptized, uh, was injured, but he was conscious, and he was able to help his friend who was unconscious, and he helped his friend, and he made a phone call to get help. And then he didn't realize he was bleeding so much, and he went unconscious, and he bled to death before he got to the hospital. And I get this phone. His dad is a surgeon in our town. And I, I get to the hospital, and there's this beautiful, handsome, athletic, 16-year-old boy laying there, lifeless. And his dad is there. He, they called him out of surgery, and I'm, I'm there with his dad, and... It's, it's shock, right? And, and his mother, who had just been at choir practice the night before at our church, did not know yet. We couldn't find her. So I took him, the father, with me in my truck, and I went home with him to find the mother. And when she opened the door and she saw her pastor and her husband, who should be doing surgery right now, she immediately knew. And she fell on her face in mourning and grief. What do you say? I'll, I tell you, there's some friends of theirs that did, a, they just do what to do because they'd been through something like that. And one of her friends went back to the ER with her and cleaned the blood off the body of her son. And, and, another, and another friend, when I went back to the house, was just in the kitchen washing dishes, not saying anything, just washing dishes. Show up. Wash the dishes. Bring a meal. Maybe they don't want to talk. Leave the meal on the front porch so they don't have to just, just be there. And, and when we're sitting in that ER room with that lifeless body of a boy that I had just baptized, another doctor came in who's a friend of the church member, the surgeon who goes to our church, and he just felt like he had to say something. And he said, well, I'll never forget this. He said, well, I guess God just needed him in heaven more than we needed him here. And I know he meant well, but that is so wrong. It's not helpful. I know you feel like you got to say something to fill the space up and it's awkward and you got to feel it. But just because it's awkward, you just don't say anything that comes to your mind. This is really important. The first mistake is to avoid people in pain. But once you're there, the second mistake is misrepresenting God with bad theology. Which means, and by the way, you say, well, theologians are for people who go to seminary. No, everybody's a theologian. Theology means the study of God. And the study of God means that you're studying God. Everybody studies, even atheists study God. They study God and conclude he's not there. I, I like what C.S. Lewis said, an atheist is someone who's angry at God for not existing. That's pretty good, right? So, so everybody's a theologian. 
you're a theologian. Wayne's a theologian, Brittany's the, but you're a theologian too. So the only question is, are you going to be a good theologian or a bad theologian? That's the only question. And, and if you give your life to the study of theology, I understand some of you guys are going through my book, uh, What Every Man Ought to Know, and those seven things. That's theology. So I'm, I've, I've given my life to making sure husbands and fathers know how to pass this down to their, the next generation. Sound, good, good theology. Bad theology will make you say things like, well, God must have needed him in heaven more. No, God has need of nothing. That's not my God. He doesn't need anything. And before he created the heavens and earth and all the things that are in the heavens and the earth, he was perfectly, independently happy within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit experienced perfect fellowship and perfect happiness. God didn't create us because he was lonely and he needed someone to talk to. God was doing fine before he created us, and he's doing fine right now, and he does not need us. Do you see how that makes God so small? It's like two kids playing with a toy. Who gets it? The bigger kid, the bully. God needed him in heaven more than we need him on earth. And if I'm a parent, I'm saying, who says? I feel like I need my son right now, right here. So, so you don't say stupid stuff. And, and if you're going to say stupid stuff, just don't say anything. You say, well, how do I know what to say? Well, study theology. I, I, this is where, you know where bad theology comes out? Funerals. Where people feel like they got to say something at a funeral. And they'll say, well, I guess he's just a guardian angel watching over us right now. Bad theology. Angels are created beings created as angels. You do not become an angel by dying. Your baby, when your baby dies, does not become an angel. You don't get that from the Bible. You get that from popular theology. You get that from Hollywood. It's a wonderful life. Do they watch that in Canada? Hey, I watch all the Hallmark movies from Canada, so you should, you should watch our stuff too, right? <laughs> so, so, so... No, they did not become your guardian angel. Human beings do not become angels. Don't say stuff like that. Spend your life preparing to know good theology so that when you need it. The reason God sent Wayne Campbell here is because most of you will never be able to go to seminary. So he brought seminary to you. I knew him before he went to seminary. We helped him go to seminary. We paid for him to go to seminary. And we're expecting him now to take everything he learned there and, and give it to you. That's, that's what happens. So misrepresenting God with bad theology. So what's the bad theology? Well, I just read it. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Here's what Eliphaz says. Remember who that was innocent ever perished? If you're innocent, you're not going to perish, he says. If you've done right, your, your life's going to go right. If you've done good, you'll experience good things. If you just trust God, if you have enough, what? Faith, then you won't be sick. It's not God's will for anyone to be sick. It's not God's will for anyone to be poor. It's not, that is bad theology. Now, now, Steve was just kind of joking when he said prosperity theology. The original prosperity theologians are Job's friends. And it is this idea that if you do good, you'll get good. 
And if you give God money, he's got to give you, you know, money back. And, and that verse he read is actually true. I, I hold on to those, those verses. And where it says in the New Testament as well, that if you trust God, that, that you can, as Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if you look at the context, what is it? To be content with what he gives you in prosperity or poverty. In other words, I believe if I give my money to the Lord's work and the Lord's workers as I should, God is going to take care of me. But I, I was in a church one time, one of these prosperity churches, just to see what it's all about. And the guy said, uh, you know, uh, he told a story where his son gave $10 to, you know, some ministry. And he got $100 in the mail back. So that's what's going to happen. You, you, give, you can't outgive God. You give him $10. You, give, you send $10 to this prosperity preacher. And God's going to give you 100 in return. You give him 100 he's going to give you 1000 Have you ever read the book of Job? You ever read the Bible? You ever read the Old Testament and the New Testament? No, this is, this is the bad theology. He said, Job, the reason your suffering is because you sin. And Job says, where, what, what am I sin? Because the Bible says he's blameless. And they say, well, we don't know what the sin is. It has to be a secret sin. Some secret sin that you haven't repented of. But if you repent, then God's going to relent. And God's going to give you back your health and your wealth and so, and, and notice this, this is also typical of prosperity theology. Look at verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. You know how they say that now? God told me. God gave me a word. God told me. If anyone ever comes to you and says, hey, God gave me a message for you, you run. Because you know how God speaks to us primarily? He speaks to us through his word. He has spoken to us. And the Holy Spirit of God is there to open up his word to us. So, so if someone says, well, you know, I got this vision. I saw a vision. Oh, well, so did Job's friends. Look at verse 13. Amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. He, he says, uh, verse 16 uh, this vision, it stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? You're not pure, Job. You've got some secret sin. And you know how I know? God told me. God, I've got inside information. Be careful with that phrase, God told me. Sometimes I know what people mean by it, but sometimes I wonder. Uh, well, you know, God told me something too. The final authority in all matters of faith and practice is the scripture. And God speaks to us through his word. He's speaking to us right now through his word. That's what all his friends do. They keep saying, Job, you got a secret sin. Now, if you relent, if you, if you repent and come back to God, then he's going to give you back your health and your wealth. But it's all dependent on you. Do you know how cruel of a system that is? In fact, one of his friends later on is going to say, you know, the reason your kids died is because they, they must have sinned against God too. Can you imagine saying that to somebody? And, and so this idea, this connection that if you do good, you're going to get good, it's counterintuitive. And Job says, wait a minute, I know a lot of wicked people who prosper. Do you? Hugh Hefner was 91 years old. And he had a net worth of over $40 million when he died. And he made a living exploiting women all of his life. And he lived longer than most people will, and he's richer than just about anyone who has ever lived. The wicked prosper. Have you ever known the righteous to suffer? 
who do good and follow the rules and you do the right thing and they die young. I, I was thinking all your vineyards, um, this is, I mean, this place is beautiful. My wife was supposed to come, but her health, she must have been sinning or something. But, <laughs> so her health kept her from flying and, uh, Man, she would love this here because the reason I watch Hallmark movies is because she likes Hallmark movies. I've kind of, I've kind of gotten into it. I feel like I could write a Hallmark movie. <laughs> and uh, so there's always, there's like, I don't know, 16 Hallmark movies about vineyards, you know. There's always a vineyard. And your vineyards are beautiful. And it reminded me of the story in the Old Testament of Naboth. And every, every Christian ought to know the story of Naboth, who was a vineyard owner in the Old Testament when Ahab was king of Israel. And uh, Ahab had a bunch of stuff. He already had a lot of land, but he wanted more. And Naboth's vineyard was right next door to his palace. He said, I want Naboth's vineyard. He went to Naboth and said, will you sell it? And Naboth said, no, I can't. Because the Old Testament law said you couldn't sell outside your family. You kept that in your family. So he's trying to obey God, do the right thing, right? And Ahab goes and he's, he's sulking. And he says, uh, I, I, I just want that yard. I just want that, uh, that, that vineyard so much. And he's crying about it, being a real baby about it. And he has a wife, and her name is Jezebel. Remember Jezebel? And, and the reason, she's not a good person, and that's why none of you named your daughters that. Hey, Jezebel, come to dinner. Nobody does that, right? <laughs> so, so Jezebel says to Ahab, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to get that vineyard for you. You just watch. You just stop crying, and I'm going to get that vineyard for you. So she pays off two guys to bear false witness to say publicly, she suborns perjury, and she gets them to say publicly that Naboth had said some bad things about the king, which was punishable by death because that was sedition, and he was executed. He did the right thing. He obeyed the law of God. He's blameless upright, followed all the rules. He dies, and Ahab gets rich. That's the world we live in. And that's why prosperity theology, which is from the United States, I'm sorry, and it's been exported into all the nations, this idea that if you do good, then you're going to get good, is not from God. It's from the enemy. Because life's not like that. History's not like that. The Bible's not like that. And your life's not going to be like that. So here's... Here's the thing that happens here in this is that this misrepresenting God with bad theology, and there's all kinds of bad theology. And the thing about bad theology, it's most effective because it's always mixed with truth. Because if you read Job's friends in Job, they say a lot of things that are really, really true. And it sounds good. And so you mix the truth with the error, and that's how it gets in. So, so that's the, the second thing to avoid. Make sure you know good theology. And then finally... Another mistake I see is this, answering the why question. Answering the why question. Now, what I mean by that is, if you sit with someone who's hurting long enough, they're going to ask a question. You know what it is? Why did this happen? And Job's friends have absolute confidence they know why. So here, Job and his friends agree on this. They agree that God ordained the suffering because God's in control. God's in control of all things, big things, little things. He's sovereign over all creation. He's sovereign over tornadoes. He's sovereign over wind. 
and he's sovereign over weather. He's sovereign over storms. What did Jesus say when he's on the boat and there are waves and the disciples are afraid? What did he say? Peace, be still. God is sovereign over all things. You say, well, maybe the big things, but not the little things. Oh, yeah? You ever heard the little ditty? For one of a nail, the shoe was lost. For one of a shoe, the horse was lost. For one of a horse, the battle was lost. For one of a battle, the war was lost. Why? Because of a nail. In 1986, I was living in Houston, Texas, and the space shuttle Challenger blasted off. Mission controls in Houston, but it blasted off from Cape Canaveral in Florida, and within just a few moments, it blew up. And, and in the ensuing investigation, you know what they found caused that? A faulty O-ring. You say, well, the little things don't matter, right? God's not, he does, the little things in life, God's not sovereign over. No, he's, over, he's just sovereign over the little things because little things always are connected to the big things. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor back in the 1800s, he's preaching in his church and the sun was coming through the windows and it was showing the dust that was kind of floating. You know how when the sun's doing that and you can see the dust floating through the air? And he said, I believe that God directs the path of every single speck of dust in the universe. That's the God I believe in. That's the God the Bible teaches, who's sovereign over all things. He, he's, he knows the future because he controls it. So they agree that God ordained the suffering. But they disagree on why. And his friend said, I know why. It's because you've sinned. And it's secret sin. You haven't confessed your sin. And Job says, I don't know why. But I know this. I'm innocent. You're wrong, and God knows. I'm innocent, you're wrong, and God knows. I don't know what God's doing, but God knows what he's doing. Now, I got good news for you. Uh, good news for me is they said I could go past 11. <laughs> you mind if I tie this up a little bit? Um, I got good news for you, I got bad news for you. The good news is you can get really effective at helping people through suffering. And I don't care who you are, you can get good at this. You want the bad news? The way you get there is by suffering. It's the way you get there. Uh, the best people I know who bring comfort to other people are the people who have suffered the most. I was a singles pastor in Fort Worth for a while, and a woman, single woman came into my office one day, and she said to me, today my son would be eight years old. Well, I'd known her for a while. I didn't know she had a son. I said, I didn't know you had a son. She said, eight, eight years ago, I had an abortion. And today, my son would be eight years old. And here's, here's what really gripped me about this. Do you know what her ministry was? She worked in a pregnancy resource center. Because since the abortion, she'd come to Christ and she found the full give forgiveness and the total pardon that comes through faith in Christ alone. And God forgave her of her sins and made her new and then equipped her and prepared her to sit with young, single, pregnant women and say, look, I kind of know what you're going through. Do you think I could do that? Your suffering uniquely, uniquely equips you 
to bring comfort and ministry to other people. Um, I, I couldn't do what she's doing, but because she'd gone through what she'd gone through, she was able to do it. It says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, you know, we would pray to the God of all comfort, that he would comfort you with the comfort with which we have been comforted. And then he goes through, the reason we went through these trials and these, these tough times, he says is, why? So that we might not be, look it up in 2 Corinthians 1, I'd do it if I had time. 2 Corinthians 1, so that we might not be dependent on ourselves, but on God. Because when you're prosperous and everything's going well, you tend to depend on yourself, right? So God takes away a little of your health, a little of your wealth. You go through some loss. You go through some failure, and, it's, and that pushes you back on God. When my, when my son, uh, Josh, was about three or four years old, we were living in Fort Worth, but Fort Worth has this water park there and uh, all kinds of water features you go play, and there's this thing called the Lazy River. You get in little inner tubes, and it's really boring. You just kind of float around in a circle. And my son, if you know him, and the camels know him, he's a type T guy. He's a thrill seeker. So, I mean, we grew up together. I'd say my son and I grew up together. We really did, doing motocross. And, uh, and, and so even at a young age, the Lazy River was not cutting it. So I took him over to the wave pool, and the wave pool is it manufactures waves in this big pool so you feel like you're at the, at the ocean. And so I took him by the hand, and I, I go to the edge, and I said, are you sure? He said, ah, yeah. So we walk in, and, you know, it's up to my knees, but it's up to his chest, and the waves are hitting him, and he looks at me, and he just thinks that's the funniest thing in the world. And he says, Let's keep, go, go. So we went out a little farther. Now it's up to his neck, and it's hitting and knocking him down. And he looked at me, and he said, let go, let go. And, and I didn't let go because I'm a dad, right? And he didn't know how to swim. And he, didn't, and he said, let go. And he kept pushing me because I'm a dad. I said, okay. Now, now, first of all, I tried to reason with him. And I said, son, don't you understand? If I let you go, you're going to fall down in this water. And you're going to ingest water that's been swimmed in by a 1,000 people who are not your relatives. <laughs> Logic does not prevail. Let go, he said. So I let him go. And underneath the water he goes. And all I see is this little hand doing this, right? So I grab the hand and I pull him up to me. And he looks at me and he's crying and he's coughing. And he hugs my neck as tight as he can. I thought, this feels great, you know. And he's holding on to me because he's close now. He knows how dependent he is on me. And I'm, I'm just hugging him. And then after a while he pushed back and he looked at my face. He looked at my eyes and he said, again? Right? Right? And I thought, that's me. That's me. Every now and then, God's going to let you go. And you're going to go under. And you're going to cough. And you're going to, you know, and it's going to be scary. And, and his people run back to him. Um, my joy, Brittany's best friend growing up, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was 11 months old. And uh, I didn't know. I didn't know what to do about it. My sister had type 1 diabetes. And um, I had an idea. Now, our life was going great. But, but now just one of those deals where it just changes. Because I knew our life was going to now be filled with uh, blood monitors. And uh, what that means is when you're 11 months old, what this means as a type 1 diabetic, a juvenile diabetic, is I knew that for the rest of her life, 
uh, she would have to, I'd have, we'd have to take a little uh, pin and, and prick her finger and get a drop of blood three times a day from her little finger and put it on a blood glucose monitor and then find out how much, where her blood sugar was. And then based on that, we would draw insulin in a syringe and we'd grab a little piece of the back of her arm or maybe, maybe you know, down around her stomach and we'd grab a fold of skin, we'd stick a needle in there and we'd, we'd push it in and she would look at us and the tears would be just coming down her cheeks and... And she looked like, you're supposed to be protecting me. You're supposed to be keeping me safe. What are you, what are you doing? I mean, she didn't say that because she couldn't talk. But that's what she said with her face. Have you ever tried to explain the function of a pancreas to an 11-month-old baby? Um, and, that, and I will tell you this. It reminded me so much of my relationship with God. Sometimes to help people, you've got to hurt people. Job is hurt. And God's doing a work in his life. Sometimes God, to help you, he's got to hurt you. And even if some of you think, if God could just explain to me, if he could just explain to me what he's doing and why he's doing it, then I'd be fine. It wouldn't hurt anymore. Wrong. It'd be like trying to explain the function of a pancreas to an 11-month-old baby. Even if he explained it to you, you would not understand. Therefore, he says, first of all, I am not entitled to give you any explanations. I'm not obligated. You're not entitled to any answers. God never promised answers. He promised comfort. He promised his presence. And he says, look, you don't know what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing. Trust me. So avoid these things. Avoid avoiding people in pain. Just run to them. Don't, don't, don't avoid them. Don't misrepresent God with bad theology. And don't try to answer the why question. If they say why, here's what you say. I don't know. I do not know. God knows, but I don't know. I, I, when I did this series in Job years ago, at the end of it, I concluded with a message that I called the 30 possible purposes of pain. And I went through the Bible. There are at least 30 reasons why God would permit pain and suffering into your life that are in the Bible. And I don't know which one it is. So, Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom as we serve you and follow you. Help us to know how to give comfort and uh, encouragement to people who are hurting. Equip us as your people to do that for each other. Help us to know what it really means in Romans chapter 12 to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.